Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joey Christopoulos. Today's episode is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. And look, BetOnline, it's the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. Like, oh, for example, the NBA playoffs going on right now. BetOnline, it's got you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. So what are you waiting for? Head to the website right now, betonline.eg, or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That is only at BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming into the pod today. I'm so excited to have this guest on. We might talk a little bit about sports, but we might talk a little bit about everything, which is why I'm so excited to have him on. He has a book that's coming out very soon. It is called Signposts on an Inner Expedition, Trusting Your Internal GPS. You could also check that out at signpostbook.com or robryansullivan.com. It is Rob Sullivan. Hello, Rob. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm so excited to have you on. So excited to talk about a bunch of different topics. We might go through a buffet of some different issues and areas, but let's just start first where I've been told um, through a previous mutual friend that you are from the Chicago area. You live in Chicago right now. Um, Our listeners really love hearing about not just the successes that you're enjoying today, but kind of the journey that brought you to that place. So just talk a little bit about your Midwest upbringing and what got you to, um, you know, the place and the profession and the expertise that you're in today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was really fortunate to grow up in downtown Chicago, which uh, not a lot of people, at least at my age, did. Uh, I went to a public grade school and only about 55 people in it uh, right off Michigan Avenue, about a block off. And it was just an amazing experience because it was really, really naturally diverse. We had people from the consulates. We had people from some of the local housing projects. I mean, racially and ethnically, just amazing experience. So grew up there. Uh, We moved up to uh, the Burbs when I was in high school. So I went to New for High School up on the North Shore, uh, which was so fun and just a very unique experience. If I had known life wasn't like that, I would have asked a lot more people on dates, as an example, um, you know, and just loved every minute of that. And then uh, ended up back here for work uh, because my very first job was at Leo Burnett, the big ad agency based here in Chicago that created the Marlboro Man and Tony the Tiger and Charlie the Tuna and all those good things. That's awesome. And so wait, uh, I'm also a former Trevian. We learned, uh, we learned this, that we're former alumni very, very recently. Just talk about, you know, when you were going to Nutria at the time, what was the size of the class? Because you mentioned, you know, coming from a, a, a grade of only 55 kids. I was very similar. I went to Murray Murphy in junior high that had a graduating class of about 72 kids. And then you go in and your graduating class is about 1100. Um, and exactly. it really, it really changes your perspective of, you know, the small community, big community. And, you know, some of my best friends I didn't meet for the first couple of years I was in high school. And that's hard for people to realize. Yeah, it was, you know, I loved it because it was, you know, for me, I mean, that's such an awkward time anyway. And to move up there as a sophomore, it was like getting a free pass to start over. Like nobody knew of all the dorkiness that had happened in the previous couple of years or whatever. And so, you know, it was, it was fun. I ended up meeting a ton of people and it was a, a buddy of mine, my best friend in high school, he and I, it was fun because we looked at the yearbook. I remember not too long after we graduated, like a week or two, we were going through the yearbook and he had transferred as a sophomore also. And between the two of us, we could name everybody in our class right. uh, with very few exceptions. And we knew them all to say hi to at least. Uh, and it was, that's what, you know, it was just amazing that even though it was huge, it wasn't that big in terms of the feel of it. And it was so, and it's just a funny experience. You know, when you go, yeah, when you have that small group of people coming up in junior high, 
you know, clicks form very quickly and you feel like you're on the outs just as quick. But sometimes in high school, I had to kind of learn that lesson a little bit of, you know, you just keep meeting people, friendships develop on their own and, and clicks form on their own. And there isn't, you know, the, I guess Nutria didn't really necessarily have a hierarchy either. I mean, everyone kind of sort of hung out with each other. It wasn't really like jocks and nerds and all that stuff that people talk about. I mean, the, the hangouts were pretty eclectic in terms of, um, you know, just socializing. Absolutely. We spent a lot of time with Loyola and Regina too, uh, just going to some of their dances and stuff. And just, yeah, I mean, just everybody was just warm and welcoming and couldn't have been nicer. It was great. So let's just get into, you know, right now, signposts on an inner expedition, you know, trusting your internal GPS, you know, that title alone, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there that has me very intrigued. And specifically, I think, you know, this book may be very prescient in terms of what we've been dealing with as a society, as a community, the last 16 months, just walk us through the impetus and the journey of, you know, what was the inspiration to write the book and, you know, maybe just kind of touch on a few themes that uh, you're so proud of and obviously so excited to release to the public. Yeah, absolutely. This one, this book took a lot longer to write than my first one. Uh, and it was interesting because, you know, I've been used to doing business writing and things like that. But what I realized over time is that the writing that I did that people responded to most, uh, you know, in terms of you know what it meant for them was were some of the more personal stories. And uh, a lot of these personal stories had to do with things that I was not necessarily raised to believe, but that I've come to believe. Uh, and so each chapter of the book covers a different topic. So like, for example, there's a chapter on past lives. There's a chapter on uh, in, uh, working with intuitives. There's a chapter on alternative medicine. And the, the alternative medicine chapter was really the one that kicked it all off because um, I had been cured of narcolepsy by a hands-on healer uh, in the mid nineties, which now I'm just to give you a little background, my dad was a doc at Northwestern Memorial in Chicago. I am not a poster child for alternative medicine. I mean, the first line of defense was always the neurologists and doctors at, at Northwestern. But after I did that and they weren't able to do anything uh, and I had all the genes for narcolepsy, I was like, I'm not going to be on Ritalin and Prozac for the rest of my life. Not interested. So I, I started searching for an alternative uh, for that. And that was what really led to everything else. So now, you know, there's like there's a chapter on dreams, there's all these different chapters. And then it's not just my stories, it's other people's stories too. So it's really, it's turned into a really interesting project. In terms of the writing process, you know, you're, you're doing the research, you're doing the work, you're getting stories from other people. In terms of your own personal stories, did you find that for some people, I find that can be a little bit more difficult of going back and actually remembering the details um, that are either your own truth or the things that actually sort of happened. Can you just talk about, you know, what kind of, you know, work ethic did you put into the book? You know, books come in many different forms, writing block and all that stuff. It's not necessarily a, a, a Midwest punch the clock kind of process. You know, what was your writing process for, for this particular uh, piece of work that you're working on? Well, this was an interesting one because the first draft of it was really more about just my stories, but it didn't have, well, it didn't have an end. And that was what I really struggled with was that I felt like, okay, I had all these stories, but I was trying to figure out, all right, well, where's it going and what's it doing? And I just had this nagging feeling that there was something missing. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, it's, it's the winning the lottery and, you know, dating the Swedish bikini team. I didn't have any idea that it was going to be the missing chapter turned out to be uh, when I was diagnosed six years ago with lymphoma and went through chemo. Um, that was the chapter that literally tied it all together because I realized that everything that I had learned and all of these lessons about trusting my intuition and paying attention to dreams, all of those things 
contributed to uh, the, uh, it, it was like the, that, getting through that uh, journey, uh, you know, and getting, you know, and being cured of the tumors. And so when I look back on it, it was just, it was amazing. It was like, oh, okay, now I get it. And then at that point, we began, I was started working with an editor and she's like, I love what you've got. And she said, you're opening my eyes to things I never really thought about before. She said, have you considered getting other people's stories for it? And I said, I think it's a great idea because a lot of people had shared stories with me, uh, you know, that were you know, things that in some cases they were more than happy to let me use their name. In some cases, people said, you know, I love what you're doing and I want to support it. Please don't use my name because some of those topics are a little bit out there. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, but that's, uh, it's been a gift just to, to get some of those stories and to, to collect those. So, and the, and the whole process has been interesting. I mean, just writing it and collecting the stories and, and then rewriting the chapters to add those stories in. Uh, it's taken a long time. I want to say it's right now going on about seven years, but it's it, we're, the, the finish line is in sight. Yeah. That's why I asked because I have, I have so much respect, um, you know, you know, growing up, so for me, you know, I ended up going to college and got a broadcast journalism background. Obviously, I got into comedy. I've done plenty of writing in my time, but nothing that would ever approach a book. I have so much respect for the process that goes into putting that piece together and then, you know, coming up with that final product. It, it truly is a journey. If I can go back uh, real quick. First off, I'm so happy to hear that you're healthy. Um, oh, and, thank and, you. Well, of course, and that you got and, and that you got through that whole thing. That whole uh, that whole process because I can't imagine what that was like. If you could, um, maybe just talk about. You said that at the time, you know what you what you knew then and what you knew now. Was it a challenge for you when you got that information? Did you feel like that you were ready to process it, or was that you know was it all a part of, you know, what happened when you got that news? Did you have to work through the journey to be able to walk on the other side and be like, man, I was ready for it with my intuition. You know, what was going through your mind space at that particular time when you found out um, that diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm open book. Happy to talk about it. So uh, I got diagnosed on my birthday, um, <laughs> which was, which is really bizarre. It was my I think my 48th birthday. And in that moment, you know, I had reached the point in life where birthdays were no longer, you know, the, you know, mom brings cupcakes to school and everybody gets celebrated. It was more like, oh, another higher number. Uh, and so I was not really looking forward to birthdays and hadn't been for years. But in a moment that all changed, I mean, it literally changed in an instant because not to sound overly dramatic, but the thought crossed my mind, am I going to live to see another birthday? Because, you know, when they got, when I got the diagnosis, they said, you have an eight by seven by five centimeter tumor sitting right on top of your heart. And you've got a whole bunch of them all around your neck. And they said, we, we don't know exactly what it is, uh, but we're pretty sure it's lymphoma. And it's, you know, it's treatable uh, and curable. And, and they never once used the word remission, which was cool. So once, once we knew that, it was great. But then that whole journey was bookended on the end by some uncertainty of whether or not it was truly all gone because of the way what they call the PET scan, which detects tumors, was lighting up. But it turned out it was lighting up because of uh, scar tissue and not because of a tumor, which thing. And they were pretty, they was like, there was like a 5% uh, chance that it was something other than scar tissue. Uh, but, you know, I had worked at the Chicago Board of Trade for a period of time and, and, you know, have come to realize that things that are only supposed to happen less than 5% of the time seem to happen a whole lot more often than that. Uh, and so I was not, uh, I was a bit hesitant. But in terms of that, you know, the, 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 in the middle of that, it was pretty quick 
that I realized I was not going to deal with this the way that other people talk about it. So like, I never talked about fighting cancer. Uh, cause to me, I looked at it and said, this came to teach me a lesson. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to, I need to figure that out. And so my whole thing was, I'm going to walk with this. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to resolve it. And I'm going to get through it as quickly as I can. I get a chill even just telling you that because uh, that was a, an absolute turning point for me. I never thought I was fighting anything. And I never really felt like that. And people, it was amazing. Uh, I was blown away because you know, I had also been told, don't, don't write about it. Don't talk about it. And I'm like, I'm going to be bald in three weeks. I don't see this being a big secret. And so I decided to be very public about it because I didn't want people to visualize me checking out. I wanted people to visualize me getting through it. And because I'm a big believer in positive energy and the power of intention. And if a whole bunch of people are going, oh, I wonder what's going on with Rob. And then they start catastrophizing. That's got an energy associated with it and not one that I want. I would rather people go, okay, you know, let's visualize him getting through it. And one friend even said, uh, one of my friends from growing up, his older sister, she said, uh, she was visualizing and she said, I saw the tumors melting which I thought was a fascinating image. And a couple of weeks later, I kid you not, the doctors were describing the impact of Rituxan, this one drug. And they're like, it, they said it literally melts the tumors. And I was like, why wow, I never, like I never even heard that word associated with cancer before. Yet here's somebody who's visualizing on my behalf, saw it, and then, they, and then the doctors told me later that that's what happened, uh, which, you know, that, which really reinforced in my mind the power of intention and thought because she was surprised by the melting image too yeah i agree with you and look i'm not in a position to tell anyone you know especially that goes through something like cancer how they're supposed to deal with it but what, what you're bringing up is obviously fighting cancer is uh the creation of an adversary correct like and that's something that they you know there's an envisioning and obviously it's something that they want to expel out of their body and forgive me for saying it but this, this positive this mantra that you took on also sort of speaks a little bit to a bit of a competitiveness though, correct? Inside of yourself to, to look at this situation and, and it almost feels like you still kind of competed with this concept of uncertainty. And forgive me, I'm kind of just trying to drill in a little bit about your personal experience, but so many people are going through things that are uncertain for them, whether it is their health, mental, physical, and, and beyond you know, financial, economical and stuff. So, you know, it looks like something that you were able to find a foundational piece in that positive thinking that allowed you to kind of work through uncertainty. Yeah. And, and you know what it is? It's language is really, really important when it comes to stuff like this. And so I never once, or maybe at the beginning until I came cl you know, clear about what I wanted to do, but I don't talk about having had tumors at the time. I didn't talk about, I have tumors because that's a, you know, it's a possession in that moment. It's something you have, you own, you, you know, it's yours these weren't mine. They were unwelcome visitors. And so I talked about experiencing tumors, uh, you know, really verbally communicating these are unwelcome guests and it's temporary. Uh, and, the, and I do believe that kind of stuff matters because you hear people talk about their illness, whatever their illness is. And it's really crystal clear. I've got relatives I can think of who are, they're very attached to their diseases. Uh, and they talk about them all the time. And, oh, I've got this and I've got that. And, and you can tell that they get a lot of attention for having it. And they haven't, they're not going to let go of these diseases. And I'm not judging this. You can do whatever you want. But they're not going to let go of something that they get a benefit from. Because, and the benefit that they get from it is they get attention and they get people to feel sorry for them. And that apparently is what they want. I didn't want any of that. I, I wanted people, I wanted it to be gone. And I wanted people to visualize it being gone. 
when you do get past a situation like that, I, you know, this might seem like an obvious answer based on what you've already said, but, you know, did you, you, you were able to resolve the trauma of the experience fairly quickly? No, you were able to sort of kind of move on because to, to be very fair to those, you know, when they do talk about that, I just feel like that they're still trying to resolve through the trauma that they sort of went through. And as you mentioned, there's a residue there that can not only affect their lives, but perhaps affect the lives of others. Absolutely. And this is going to sound really weird and I can't explain it. But this was one of the happiest times. Well, at that point, it was the happiest time of my life. Uh, not at the very beginning of it, because at the very beginning of it, I'm not going to lie, I was traumatized. And, and I realized that one of the lessons was, how do I deal with, you know, who am I in the face of uncertainty? And I was not, um, I mean, I wasn't a raging lunatic, but I was certainly not the nicest version of myself. Uh, but the once I got into a place where I was like, okay, you know, we're going to get through this, got a plan, everything's fine. Uh, that the love that I felt, and I used to think literally that tears of joy was an expression. I didn't, I mean, that's real. And I found out that that was real. It opened me up emotionally in ways that I can't even begin to describe. I was literally like, I was so happy. I mean, the love, when you're getting bombarded by love, literally from all over the world, because, and the reason for that was I host couch surfers. I've hosted over 900 couch surfers from 65 different countries. Uh, and so Literally, I mean, I was getting cards and letters and calls and emails and texts from people in like all these different countries, you know, saying, you know, we love you, Rob, we're praying for you. You know, it's like, I, like, how can you not be happy when you got that going on in your life? To pull it back a little bit and maybe, you know, just if I may pull a word from the title of your book, um, you know, on a broad on a broad range right now. And look, we're not solving anything today. Uh, you know what I mean? But obviously we're looking back on these last 16 months and we are still experiencing some problems with that. How big of an effect do you think this time has had on people's instincts and intuition and how that kind of can play into the concept of uncertainty and perhaps maybe trauma that a lot of people are going to have to be dealing with, not just now, but over perhaps maybe the next couple of years? Yeah, well, it's a really excellent, excellent question. And I feel like I've, it seems like people have been in two camps. And I've been really impressed with the number of people who are in the, the first camp that I'm going to describe. And that was the camp that said, what's the gift in this? Mm. Because every single time I have faced a, a big challenge, there's been an equal gift, if not bigger, coming on the opposite side. So like, for example, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example for this. I go around the country and I lead workshops for companies. So naturally that came to a screeching halt. And, and I you know, spent the first month or so, you know, thinking, oh, geez, you know, what's going to happen? You know, how are we going to do this? And I caught myself because there's a, a thing called a scarcity mentality. And I used to have a big scarcity mentality around money. And thank God I resolved that. But then it started to creep back because I was like, okay, you know, my first thought, I'm, I'm human, was, okay, what expenses should I be cutting and all this stuff? I said, no, no, no. I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to tell the universe that I'm expecting less money to come in. Let's figure out how this is going to play out. And the great gift in all this is the company started to open their mind to virtual training. And as a result, uh, I can now literally live anywhere in the world and do what I do, uh, which is phenomenal. No, no late for traffic. No, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And people will do in-person stuff again, which is great. And I'll go do it. But like, I would say that more than half of my business is likely to stay virtual. And I'm totally cool with that because I would much rather be in Switzerland or on a beach in the Caribbean or somewhere other than the kitchen in my townhouse in Chicago. 
Yeah, and this is something that is, I think what I'm about to say might be difficult for some people, but I, I really think this is something that we need to kind of sort of drill in on, and you just brought it up so perfectly. And I'm going to give you a little bit of my backstory just very quick. Obviously, before this, um, actor, writer, working at a restaurant. Um, and there, I think there's a lot of great things that come out of working at a restaurant. I just did it for way too long, six days a week. You wake up, you got to do the shift again. You get home, you can't fall asleep because you're all wired. You get up too late. You know what I mean? Just the, the grind over and over and over again. And when this happened, I did have the scarcity mentality of, oh, you know, where is this going to come from? What's going to happen and everything. But as I've moved on, obviously, I have such a passion for what I'm doing, which is talking to people like you and doing this show. And I don't even care if it's on mic or whatever. I just love this. This is this has changed. This has changed my life. And what I'm trying to sort of get my head around is, you know, we've experienced so many things that have been really, really hard, whether it's, you know, rhetoric with family members, whether it's the politics at the time, and whether it's the health issue, which is the biggest and most important of all, that at some point, some of us maybe need to look around and ask ourselves, you know, and be thankful and just say to ourselves, you know, maybe this time was a blessing. And all I'm trying to say is if there's been so much pain over this last year and a half, it is almost incumbent upon me to make take this opportunity of this blessing that I'm still, I'm, I'm still here and I'm okay. And my family, you know, all that stuff. And I need to do something about that. And maybe it is something about not people let, I mean, when it's going to be hard for us to let go of that trauma, right. And maybe move to the point of, you know, this, this has to be an opportunity to do things a little bit better. As you mentioned, you know, I, I want to maybe be a different person than I was before, whether it is nicer, whether it is more considerate, we're kind of in that space right now. And we have that opportunity to perhaps, you know, view this as a blessing and treat it as an opportunity to do better by all of us. Yeah, I, I fully believe that. And and I get, and I'm not trying to minimize, I know there are certain people who are impacted by this a lot more than others. Of you course. Know, and they, you know, many people lost their lives. So I'm not minimizing any of that. Those of us who are fortunate enough to get through it, owe it to everybody else to look for the gifts. Because if we can look for the gifts and figure out what the blessing was, uh, you know, then it, it makes it easier to deal. No one's going to want to relive 2020. I totally get that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there weren't good things that came out of it. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears just for a little bit. And then I want to come back with something that's sort of similar to this towards the very end. But I do want to get to this where this has been a kind of a pet, like uh, topic for me for, for quite some time. And especially during this particular time over the last 16 months, honestly, I'm just kind of looking for commonalities. Uh, among the human race, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm looking for things that 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 either bring us together just because we all get a chance to expose ourselves to them. You know, like we all cry at the end of the day, like, you know, we can all bitch and moan and fight as much as we want. One of those is for me sports. And this show obviously covers a lot to do with sports. And I'm just kind of interested about and this could be good or bad. But, you know, did you play sports growing up? Um, if you did, what sport was it? And did how does it how does that that affect you playing sports? Does that affect you at all in a positive or negative way? The way you take it into business and family today? Yeah. Okay. So I, I thought about this because you know, when you said that you want to talk about that, I love that. And, and honestly, it's something that doesn't usually come up. So I did get my thoughts around it. There's a couple of things that I want to hit on that. So for one, uh, I was a springboard diver at New Trier. Now, interestingly, I was not a particularly good springboard diver because I was born with really bad club feet and I'm unable to point my toes in any meaningful way. Uh, so I got points deducted on literally every single dive. Uh, but you know what? I didn't care because to me, you know, like I'm kind of competitive, I'm kind of not. 
like it was just fun it was an individual thing and it was like i just love i love the feeling of doing a full twisting one and a half off the high board i mean there's like that to me is like the ultimate fun thing and i even did one a couple of years ago in europe when i found a high board you know people were looking at me like who's this 40 year old guy like you know up on a high board but like i, gotta try this. I still got yeah. it I still got it rob come on <laughs> totally yeah now i also played i was a bit more competitive when it came to floor hockey which i started playing when i was in grade school and then like after getting out of college you know the, the Chicago Social Club had all these floor hockey teams and my brothers and I used to play on them which was great but you know the, the biggest thing you know when I think about sports and business which was the second part of your question the the biggest driver uh, in terms of in the biggest connection with that is my great-grandfather was a, a, a professional baseball player same with my great-uncle they both played for the Chicago White Sox and the reason I bring this up is because my great-grandfather was the first catcher to play behind home plate he invented the chest protector. Before he did that, catchers used to catch pitches on a bounce and umpires used to stand behind the pitcher and call balls and strikes. So he literally changed the game. Unfortunately, in 1902, he got an offer for, I think it was $1,000 for the patent for that chest protector. Now, $1,000 in 1902, I couldn't even imagine what that's equivalent to now, but it's a whole hell of a lot more than $1,000. Um, probably, you know, well into six figures in comparison or something like that. And so he sold the patent and, you know, and he basically cried about it for the rest of his life because he later realized what a huge mistake he made. It's hard to think of a sport that doesn't use some version of that equipment. And so it's literally changed a lot of my negotiations and business relationships because, you know, it's incredible how many times you can sign a contract and people just want you to give up your rights. And, and under no, I've had, I had one thing, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an actor, my friend. I know a thing or two oh. about, uh, hey, shut up and just sign this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I had, you know, there's a company I work for right now and do contract stuff for. We spent a year negotiating the agreement. It had nothing to do with money. It had everything to do with intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and honestly, it's uh, from our side that what they do with the leverage with us is they just basically say, you should be thankful to have the job. So just sign it. Oh, by the way, we're also going to be using your face, your likeness, your performance, and your creativity to actually, you know, hawk out this particular piece. You know what I mean? Anyways, but yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, because I did some on-camera acting and and did a lot of classes at the Green Room in Chicago. Now, I never did any. I did a couple commercials here and there, but like, I know what you mean, because you got... The actors are an afterthought. They hire you like the day before the shoot, pretty much. Everything else is lined up, and then they're like, oh, okay, well, let's use this person. Oh. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, th- and th- that's really interesting. I mean, God, the chest protector story is so fascinating. I was a catcher in high school, so I thank your great grandfather there. Uh, I mean, I it didn't save the bruises on my arms, but certainly saved him probably on my chest for sure. And I just find it really interesting. Where obviously I love sports, right? I kind of consume it all the time, every day. It's a bit of a problem. Now, I'm not the kind of guy that if you go to a cocktail party, I'm just going to randomly bring up the Chicago Cubs pitching staff, you know, and, and have everyone, you know, kind of absorb into my kind of thing, but I love it very much, but obviously growing up and then going into comedy and and actors and performers and stuff, I've been around so many people that don't enjoy sports, but what I always find so fascinating is that sports still informed them and their choices one way or the other, where for me, it was, I loved the team aspect. I loved the planning. I loved, you know, you know, working with someone else's skills to match mine to create and, you know, achieve a goal. While others looked at sports and said, you know what, I want nothing to do with that. I'm going to create my own individuality. And they almost kind of like bounced off of sports 
So whether they like it or not, it almost kind of sort of helped them out a little bit to sort of get themselves into the core of who they are. And what's so fascinating about it is I think that we're all one way or another as kids exposed to that element. And there's no right or wrong answer. You could love sports. You could hate sports. You could like it for a while and then not like it anymore and then find it maybe juvenile or whatever. But all of us one way or another, are, are, it's a weird social construct um, that sort of we get exposed to at a very young age that I find a commonality in. And, 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 and it makes me very proud to enjoy sports. You know, I love that perspective because, you know, as you were talking, I was having a flashback to all the times that I was playing on teams where people took it entirely too seriously. Like I had my grade school uh, team, you know, I went to Ogden school in Chicago and I was four foot 10 when I graduated from eighth grade. So I was not in danger of, of doing any great things on the basketball team. And, and we used to get crushed in every game because all of the public schools in Chicago had, you know, kids who you know, were on the playground doing it all the time. And they were all over six feet tall. And most of us were under five, five. So, I mean, we, we didn't stand a chance, but we had this gym teacher who like, he had his favorite players. And then some of you know, the rest of us, we might get like two minutes in a game. And like, we weren't going to win. It wasn't going to make any difference. Like, why would you, why would you rob kids of that opportunity? And that was, um, and I don't just say that from the perspective of, you know, not having, you know, been, you know, spending a lot of time on the bench. Uh, but, you know, I think about that and it was like, and in some cases I get it, but in a lot of cases, I feel like, okay, this is not the world series. Just give it a rest and let people get out there and have fun. You can still be competitive and you can still be, you know, happy one or sad that you lost. But this whole concept of like when I watch people and their entire day is ruined when their team loses and all they were doing was sitting on the sofa watching it. I'm like, I don't relate to that at all. Well, guilty as charged growing up. But the important thing, I mean, I'm talking about when I'm a kid, you know what I mean? But the, the important thing is you got to learn how to lose, right? I mean, like winning, everyone talks about winning and we put such a high priority on it, not just in sports, but in everything in life, whether it is the financial that we're talking about or or the perception that we put out on social media. But I think that it's, there's, there's bravery and there's vulnerability and losing and learning how to get back in it and, and trying just as hard the next time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not, and believe me, I'm not in the, everybody gets a trophy camp. Not, I think that's ridiculous. No. Yeah. But, the, but I do like the idea of people being able to participate and you, you participate as a team. I had a teacher in, in uh, grad school who used to say, that, you know, because every every class has its misfits. And she told us, she said, if you put the misfits together, you know, if you if you first of all, let me back up, if you put them, you know, and you said there were five misfits and you divided them up among five teams, they would be the non performers on the team, they would just sit there quietly and do nothing. But if you put them all together, they're going to do magic and they're all going to get along and everything's going to be great. And it's like, it's literally, you know, are you, are you creating an environment where people can show up and be the best version of themselves? And that's really, to me, more of what it's all about. And so, you know, maybe you've got a second scoring team that goes out there and, and plays a line like in hockey or whatever. Um, and they're not anywhere near as good as the first one, but they get out there and they get to experience things and they get, you know, checked into the boards and flattened and whatever, but, you know, they're going to go home bruised and beaten and they're going to have had some fun because they got to get off the bench. Yeah. You know? what, a, what an excellent, uh, what an excellent perspective on that too. And, and just the, the principle of it, you're going to probably learn, you know, something out of it one way or another, then maybe you're not going to learn about hockey, but you're going to make a friend along the way. You're going to learn how to make a friend or you're going to learn how to yeah. get over an injury or just have a good time. Um, I, I do want to switch over a little bit. Uh, I'm fascinated by this. Um, I, 
forgive me if the, the question is vague, but just tell me, tell me about your perception of dreams. Um, and you, you feature it a little bit in the book to, um, you know, so what do dreams, what do dreams mean to you and why do they fascinate you? Dreams are amazing. Uh, because, well, I'm going to, I'm going to share a story. Um, I have to be somewhat confidential about it because it's a, it's a very dear friend of mine. Uh, but what happened to him was he had a dream, uh, that he woke up, uh, he woke up in this dream and well, during the dream, he was standing on a shore and he saw this, you know, the water was really, you know, violent. It was like a, and the sky was pretty dark. It was like three in the afternoon. And as he's standing there, this lifeguard comes up and then all of a sudden it gets really calm and the lifeguard communicates him with, to him without words, which is often a sign of spiritual type stuff because telepathy is a big thing there. They don't need words. So he communicates to him without words and he says, this is going to get worse before it gets better. And he turns around and starts running away. The lifeguard turned around and started running away from the water at top speed. So the guy, this friend of mine is thinking, well, if the run, lifeguard's running away from the water, I better run away from the water too. So he starts heading back and he catches up to the lifeguard at the point of this, there's like this 50 foot wall. And it was a, a big, you know, picture a big wall with like the big sort of cement blocks stacked up on top of each other uh, with enough like space in between that seaweed and stuff could grow. He gets there and he sees the, the wave come crashing into the wall and the, like the seaweed and the water comes out the other side as he's running e at equal you know, length of the wall. So why is this important? Because he started off the day um, and he had, after he worked out, he had a little uh, pain in his collarbone, like just a, like a tightness. He thought it was a pulled muscle. So he goes, his first appointment of the day was to get a cortisone injection in his ankle. And so, you know, he started asking the doc, hey, why is there, um, why, if the, if the bone, you know, if the ankle's bone on bone, why is the pain like three inches up the leg instead of at the ankle? And the doc's like, oh, that's referral pain. He goes, you know, it's like if you were having a heart attack or something. It's like, oh, okay, whatever. So later that afternoon, he goes to another appointment and he had a, a, a scan on his tooth because it had cracked and they sent him for a 3D x-ray. And the doc's like, so are you having any pain on that tooth? He goes, no, but the bottom tooth, you know, he's not on top of the bottom tooth. There's a little pain there. And the doc's like, oh, that's referral pain. It's like, okay, now I'm hearing about referral pain twice in one day. Well, fast forward. So the, the, the cramp in his shoulder went away. Uh, then he gets home, has a client meeting. He goes out, uh, he's walking up the street to go get dinner pain comes back. Now this is a friend of mine is very intuitive and he's very into dreams and stuff. This dream was bugging him all day because he's like, you know, what, what did that mean? It was such a vivid, such a powerful dream. So when this thing comes back, the first thought was, okay, well, it was here this morning, then it was gone. Now it's back. And the lifeguard said, it's going to get, you know, don't be fooled. It's going to get worse, you know, after you know, this. And so he checks in with his intuition and he says, he asks, he said, can I go get shrimp tacos or do, you need, do I need to get this checked out? That was the question. And the answer came back immediately. You need to go get it checked out. So he goes over to the intermediate care, uh, took a little Uber over there. They hooked him up to an EKG and they're like, yeah, you're having a heart attack. Uh, and so he ended up getting a stent and the docs couldn't believe it. They're like, you're totally healthy. You don't seem to have a, a history. You're in really good shape. You've got stomach muscles. You know, you're not like this fat slob kind of a person. And they're like, they were, and everybody was asking about the dream because he told them about the dream. He was real upfront about it. Um, and the dream literally saved his life, literally, because it was not like, there was nothing about it that was a classic heart attack, but his artery was 90% blocked. And he was listening to something that isn't, I think, the common communication 
or forgive me, like the the literal signposts of, of life that tell you, you know, turn off at this exit or you have an appointment at this time. He was listening to something else that was that was really resonating deep inside of him. So my question is, in the year 2021, are humans, are we in touch with our intuition? Or do we, where are we with our instincts right now? Are we good at it? And how can we get better? We're not particularly good at, I mean, there's, it depends is the short answer. I spent two weeks at a wilderness survival school that was taught by this guy who had learned from a Native American, uh, you know, a lip and Apache medicine man, shaman. And so there's a real spiritual component to it. And he said, you know, as an example, we eat, we overeat because our, we can't tell the difference between when we're thirsty or hungry. Most of the time when we think we're hungry, we're actually thirsty. And so on that level, but little kids are great. Like if you put little kids, like take, say that they were nutritionally deprived of some, you know, whatever, some vitamin, some supplement or whatever. And you put out a buffet of all kinds of stuff. And, you know, there were Twinkies and donuts and, and celery and spinach and whatever. They will naturally go to whatever they're deficient in. They're not going to go to the ice cream just because there's ice cream. They will actually, they know what they need. Um, if they get lost in the forest, they're much more likely to survive because they can keep themselves warm and they will eat stuff that they know, you know, intuitively is okay. Uh, but once we get a bit older, we're totally out of touch with a lot of that stuff. Like most people have no idea that there's more vitamin C in pine needles than there is in orange juice. And same with pine bark. Now it's edible. It's not palatable, but it's edible. There's all kinds of things that are edible. Like people, you know, the guy used to say people are out there in the woods dead next to a food source, having starved because they didn't know it was a food source. Uh, now, when it comes to more spiritual stuff, more and more people are opening up to intuition and, and guidance and things like that, which is really heartening to see. And that's really for me what the book's about is because I feel like there's this whole group of people on the one hand who are, you know, people, some people call them the new agers. You know, you get a book like the one that I wrote, they're going to, they'll buy that one. It's not like, am I going to buy this book or that book? They'll buy this book and that book and that one and that one and that one. And then there's the other people on the opposite end of the spectrum who you, they don't, I don't care how well they know you. I don't, none, none of it matters. They're, they're not interested. They're not going there, which is fine. My audience is really, you know, I'm happy for the people who are going to buy the book no matter what, which is great, but it's really the group in between who are like, yeah, I'm not hundred percent sure. Like with uh, my friend, Carolyn, who went to Nutria also, she wrote me a beautiful note after I had posted about the narcolepsy. And she said, I've always wanted to believe this. If it weren't for you, I wouldn't still believe, you know, I wouldn't believe it. But now she said, you've opened my eyes. And that to me is like what I feel like my, my role in all of this is to, is to get people to think about it. Because, you know, if you look at that category, almost every male author in that category is a psychologist. And I'm not knocking it. You know, Dr. Wayne Dwyer is great. You know, Deepak Chopra is great. They all have stuff. There are very few former traders in advertising people, like none um, on the guy side. Uh, and so I really feel like there's a, there's a possibility for me to, to reach more people. Uh, you know, people who, who, there's a lot of people, let's face it, who are a bit suspicious about psychologists and they think they're a little wacko. Uh, people are going to think I'm wacko too, which I'm totally fine with. I don't care. But uh, you know, the, I, if we can get a few more people to pay attention to things that are important, you know, if, if they pay attention to a dream that ultimately saves their lives, like this happened to this dear friend of mine, uh, totally worth it. It would have been worth the whole seven-year journey if one person is saved. Yeah. Uh, and, and to your point, 
and and what, what you just said too as well i think there's also something where we eventually maybe now look there's certain things that are are really hard to discuss and there are certain lines that we all have to draw as a society but we kind of have to get back into this mode of like disagreements okay right everyone's gonna have everyone's gonna feel a little bit differently about whether it is psychology or whether it is about whatever you know i do feel like that there are um a lot of people in this world that you know to and this is this is just what they're doing i don't think they're necessarily wrong or right but i just don't think they they want to think about new things because survival the, the fear of thinking outside of the own box threatens their own survival and just their survival of their inner self so if they just stay on that one side that you were talking about and never think about it or denounce it or just say that you know whatever you're never really going to do anything where if you just get a couple people to think about things in a different way and open themselves up and at least let everyone know that it is okay to attempt to try and get better at things in life as you move along and always admit to yourself that you can always try and be better, then at least you can have people contemplate some of these aspects. And like you mentioned, maybe not like wholeheartedly agree across the line, but if you can just open up your mind to a couple of things, it might just do what you just said, maybe save your life or maybe open up a new door that you never even thought was possible that might've been locked your entire life. Exactly. Or, or just create, take something that was already a rich experience and make it richer. Two mm -hmm. stories in the book, two separate women wrote stories about how they were, they had a vanishing twin. They didn't know they, and a vanishing twin for people who don't realize that is a, a woman's pregnant with twins. And one of them at some point in the nine months dies. Uh, both of, neither one of these women knew or had ever been told that they had a twin uh, yet they, you know, in the early part of their lives, you always had one, uh, Haley Brasser, this one uh, girl said, she said, every dream she's ever had her twins been in, but she didn't know it was, her, you know, literally her twin. Uh, and then uh, the other girl, Marjorie, said the same thing. You know, this girl was always, she thought she was in her class. She thought it was like a real live person. Uh, but then later after they moved to a different town, you know, the, the girl showed up in her dreams. Only later, when both girls were about nine or 10, did their mothers tell them that there had been a second twin. Uh, and that was, uh, and, and so they were having dreams that, you know, and, and they, got, they got evidence that uh, cor uh, corroborated, like, for example, Marjorie's twin, uh, her, you know, when she was a little girl, she even asked her mom later, she's like, why, why is Mathilde not in this picture? Mathilde is the name that her parents were originally going to give. They were going to call the twins Mathilde and Stephanie. When one of them died, they decided to name the remaining one March. Marge had no way of knowing that. Yet, you know, she had dreamt about Mathilde all her life. I've got just uh, I've got two more topics for you. Really appreciate Rob Sullivan, you taking the time right now talking about your book, Signposts on an Inner Expedition, Trusting Your Internal GPS. Two more for you. This one's going to be pretty uh, vague, if you don't mind. Um, for those of you that are interested in your book, that are, want to check it out, that want to know everything about it, and I don't want to step on anything that might be in the book, but can you give maybe the listeners one piece of mindfulness? I don't know about advice, but one piece of maybe um, a tactic, a tool um, of mindfulness that they can employ in their lives today, tomorrow, and in the following days that might help maybe get them a little bit on the right track or at least begin to kind of open up their mind a little bit to the possibilities of, of perhaps their own potential? Wow, that's a great question. I like it. I got to think about that. And I'm not just saying it's a great question because like people say that, but it truly is. Uh, so there's a few things that, that come to mind and occur to me with that. Uh, the one, uh, 
the one that I'm going to go with is, is really one that I picked up more this week. Uh, and I, I literally put it in my calendar and I've been doing it every day. And, uh, and the, the, the phrase that I put in my calendar is, I got to look it up because I need to be accurate about this, uh, is, um, is this a satisfying thought? Now, this dovetails with something that I had seen uh, a week or two ago that said, when something bad happens, you got to ask yourself, uh, if, is this something that's going to matter five years from now? And if, if not, then don't give it more than five seconds attention. Uh, and so, and that was the other one, you know, is this a satisfying thought? If you catch yourself thinking about something like, you know, you want to get revenge on somebody for something or, you know, and we all have those human thoughts, you know, we win those imaginary arguments in the shower. Catching yourself in that moment and a couple of times, even today, I've caught myself and I'm like, you know what, that's not a satisfying thought. And then I shifted uh, because Albert Einstein once said, and I may misquote him a little bit, but the idea was one of the most important decisions you can make is, is the world a friendly place? Because from that decision, everything else flows. If you go out there and you view the world as an unfriendly place and you think every driver's out to get you and they're all out to cut you off and nobody's going to let you in when you get on the expressway, the universe is pretty much going to deliver that right to your doorstep. If, on the other hand, you choose to believe that the world is a friendly place and that good things happen, it's funny how that will often be the path to your doorstep. So it's, it's a combination of that, really just catching yourself in the negative thinking and then turning it around as fast as you possibly can. Hmm. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then um, and one final one for you in, in regards to, you know, uh, your book, and obviously people can pre-order it on sign, uh, signpostbook.com, robryansullivan.com. Um, is there any sort of piece of advice that you could maybe impart upon people moving forward? A big thing for me right now that I'm trying to internally get through is we still are living in this uncertainty, right? And obviously, as we stand today, we're talking here June 1st, 2021, everything appears to be, you know, trending in the right direction in general. But you know, there's people that are still disagreement on so many different issues from whatever political, religious, social, all this other kinds of stuff. There's a lot of this going back and forth right now. And I don't even want to solve that issue. My question is for you. My big thing right now is we really need to focus on having empathy towards people and the choices that we make, even if we so, you know, fiercely disagree with them. Um, you know, what is just kind of your take on what empathy, what kind of role empathy is going to have to play moving forward after we've gone through such an unprecedented time? Because I just feel like, you know, in the next couple of years, you know, there's going to be scenarios where maybe everything goes back to normal and two years from now, someone's going to come over to dinner and still want to wear a mask. Right. And are, what are we yeah. going to do? Are we going to make fun of that person? Or are we going to have compassion and empathy for just the way that they feel about their particular life, even though we have moved on? You know, that's a weird example, but it's kind of getting at the heart of what I'm trying to talk about. Right. Um, and it's interesting because it goes to uh, something that I do in a lot of the sales training classes that I teach. I'm all about being, you know, in that moment, it's customer focused. But it, the, the point is, it's other focused. So whether you're in sales or whether you're doing something else, it's how and, and it's funny because my friend Barry Von Zale and I, uh, uh, do these workshops and we talk about what we call the non-negotiable proficiencies. And one of the non-negotiable proficiencies is positioning, but positioning is a bit different because it's really, you can think of it more as empathy. Are you, can you see the world from another person's perspective? Because if you could, uh, the odds are overwhelming when you see somebody who's doing something that you disagree with. Uh, if you had lived their life and you had had all of the data points and all the experiences that they had had, the odds are overwhelming you'd be making the same decision that they're making. 
And so if you can't see it, it means that you haven't taken enough time to really view the world from their perspective. It doesn't mean you're going to walk away and agree with them on that. But, you know, we, you know, history is loaded with examples, you know, where you look back and go, well, if I had lived through that time, I wouldn't have done that. I'm not so sure that's true. If you had lived through that time and you had had all those same experiences and all those same data points, you know, the decisions we make are based on the experiences that we had before. So odds are you probably would have done the same thing as, you know, whatever. And it's a, it's an unusual person who take, who goes against all that and takes a stand, you know, for themselves. So when you're talking about empathy for people, it's really, there's an exercise I do uh, and I have my clients do too. I say, you know, sit down and you spend 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes quietly with your eyes shut and imagine that you are that person. What are they thinking about? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? What are their fears? Uh, really see the world from their point of view. And if you can't do that, uh, you know, or you're having trouble answering one of those questions, then you don't know them well enough. You're not relating very well to them. And, and it's okay to ask, you know, to be able to say, uh, you know, hey, Joe, I've been thinking about this from your point of view. And it occurs to me that I'm not real clear on, you know, why this part, you know, this is so important or, you know, what your perspective is on this, because I really want to understand, you know, what you're thinking and feeling right now. That's going to be a good, healthy conversation. You know, if I just sit there and judge you for something that you're doing that I don't understand, then I'm not being fair to you. And I'm certainly not being, you know, fair to the relationship because I'm jumping to conclusions that candidly are, are, are like I said, it's just not, it's not a fair thing to do to somebody. Well, right. Empathy can lead to perspective. Sometimes it can also lead to a level of respect that you didn't necessarily see. And look, I'm in agreement. You, you can still have that disagreement, right? And I'm sure people are listening being like, well, what about the extreme cases of what about someone who's in the KKK or something along those lines? Well, to be honest, if I put myself in their shoes, all I see out of them is just sadness and pain and people probably treating them so poorly throughout all their lives that now they have this own hate in their lives and now they want to expel it upon other people. That doesn't mean that I feel, you know, you know, less or more for them one way or another, but I can at least see that sadness. And to be honest with you, when I do see that, it takes some of their their power away from me, like personally. And and I, I, I'm not saying that we should go across the aisle and start shaking hands with a lot of those type of people. But at least at the very least, maybe it can kind of tone down a little bit some of these. I mean, we're just we're, we're fighting. <laughs> people are just fighting a little bit too much. Obviously, we see it on social media a lot. And um and I just wish that there are there were ways to perhaps see other people's perspectives, disagree, and then we can all make choices about whether we want to have certain people in our lives or not. Yeah, well, and if I could add one thing to that, the, the social media thing that you bring up is an interesting point because you, what you're talking about there is written communication. Mm-hmm. And the downside yeah. of written communication is that you're forcing the other person to respond in a vacuum. So like, you know, right now, if you and I were having a disagreement and you said, Rob, I think you're the biggest jerk ever, you know, I might get upset by that, but at least I would have the satisfaction of knowing that you saw me get upset. If you were to send that to me in an email or text or throw it up on a social media page, I'm I'm responding in a vacuum. And so if I was going to get maybe say six or seven out of 10 on an upset scale, you know, from you telling me to my face that you think I'm a jerk, uh, I'm going to be 12 out of 10 when I read it online. Uh, because we've taken away that feedback mechanism. And I firmly believe, uh, and I, you know, obviously I don't have control of everybody, but I wish uh, we would do each other the courtesy of, if we're going to say something that's going to hurt or upset or disappoint somebody, that please don't do it in uh, written or text or any, you know, smoke signal, you know, do it in a, in a real time. If you can't do it face-to-face, at least 
do it by phone or, or Zoom or something like that, where there's the feedback mechanism still exists. Because if you don't, that is a surefire way to torch relationships. Yeah. And maybe ask yourself the first step, is this a satisfying thought? And if yeah. it's not, then you can then maybe take the step to, to then, yeah, actually, if that person is in your life and chances are if they're a Facebook friend, they probably are in your life. You at least probably owe it to them to either, like you said, do a face-to-face or on the phone. And then whatever happens after that, at least that the very point that you can live with that instead of just firing off on somebody and turning uh, a Facebook post into a 45 comment, you know, uh, battle royale. Total. Well, and there's a Buddhist principle that I love that speaks to what you, I love that you tied it back to, is this a satisfying thought? Cause you're exactly right. And the Buddhist principle is, is what I'm about to say an improvement over maintaining silence. And that to me has always been a warning sign. If that thought goes through my head, it's a warning sign. I need to keep my mouth shut. Now I wish I could say I was hundred percent successful at keeping my mouth shut in those moments. Cause I'm not, uh, I'm working on that. Uh, but that's a really good litmus test for me about is this really a conversation worth having? And also that, that's such a great quote too, as well, because obviously I think a lot of people are becoming at least um, more aware of issues that have been long not talked about. And we are now hopefully giving voices to some of those issues to have a conversation. And through maybe that Buddhist mantra, we are finding improvement by not maintaining that silence. But if we can maintain a level of empathy as we go through all this stuff, Hopefully we can make some sort of progress to make lives a little bit better for everyone, man, woman, child, race, creed, religion, whatever that may be. Oh, I think that's great. Yeah. Cause you know, just taking time to, you know, learn from you. If I just listen to you and I hear your perspective and I don't do it with the eye toward, I'm going to try to convince you that I'm right, but I just, I, I want to be an investigative reporter and figure out who you are and what you're all about and why you think what you think. Uh, that's, gonna that's gonna create the common ground uh it may not be the 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 full-on understanding or uh you know we're gonna be on the same page but we don't have to be the book is called signposts on an inner expedition trusting your internal gps my guest today was rob sullivan and rob if i can be if i can be honest with you again i've been i've been pretty vulnerable with you without this talk i really have enjoyed it and I, you know, I've been trying to do like, I do like three, four or five pods a week. I've been doing it like every single week. I haven't taken any time off. I love it dearly, but I tell you there's some, there's some weeks, maybe it's cause it's the holiday. Just today I was like, man, this week, I'm going to have to do this, this, whatever, whatever, all this other stuff. I was maybe feeling a little bit more, but I'll tell you our conversation that we just had kind of like inspired me, kind of kickstarted me a little bit. And I'm really excited to enjoy the rest of my week. So I, I, I just thank you. I don't think we saw, you know what I mean? We're, we're just talking about, about stuff and I love hearing your perspectives. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Oh, you just made my day. Thank you, Joey. Oh, my, my pleasure, man. And hopefully maybe we can bring you back down somewhere down the road. I got plenty more to ask you, trust me. I would love it. Yeah, anytime you want. That'd be great. And final thing, just real quick, um, please tell the good people, I, I said sign book, uh, signpostbooks.com, robryansullivan.com. Any other um, forums, platforms that they can check out, not just you know, the book, uh, and please let us know when, if you have a date for when it's coming out, please let them know in other ways that they can check out your work. Yeah. The, uh, another website is the, uh, Sullivanzale.com S U L L I V A N Z Y L.com. Barry Von Zale and I, uh, Barry Von Zale, you were talking about music earlier. Uh, He's the drummer for Johnny Clegg. Music. We're getting to music next time, I promise. Cool. Yeah, no. He He's a drummer for Johnny Clegg, uh, the South African guy who sold 5 million albums. And he and I are doing workshops together. So 
yeah next time we're going to talk uh we're going to talk some music and some playlists and some bands and all that good stuff we'll get into that oh, i'd love to yeah <laughs> thank Fashion. you so for joining this episode of believe in betting chicago with joy christopoulos was brought to you by betonline.ag make sure you head to the website it's free to sign up they give a 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit so what are you waiting for head on over there thank you so much for listening to this pod today we got plenty more coming the rest of this week until then be well be safe please be good to each other we will talk soon Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.